So have your subjects commented to you at all about what they think of their portraits? Most of them don't recognize themselves. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're very painterly. And I wonder if, in a way, they're almost all portraits of you. They are. They're all self-portraits. Every piece is made. Hi, this is Libby. And this is Roberta. And this is our blog radio. And that was Donald Camp, who you just heard speaking. Donald makes extraordinary photographic portraits of the human face, mostly that is, the faces of African-American men. He's creating an archive similar to the German photographer August Sander of those faces that are mostly not included in the telling of history. Camp is a Pew Fellow in 1995, and he shows his work locally at Gallery 339. We're in Don's studio. So you call your portraits, and that's what they are, right? Portraits? Well, I kind of avoid the word portrait, actually. I, if, if, I, if I use the word portrait, then that sets up a particular standard. I'm doing faces, and I use faces in order to create different kinds of compositions. OK, so your faces as a group, many of them are called dust-shaped hearts. Yes. So can you tell a little bit about how you came up with that title? What does that mean? Well, uh, the, the poet Robert Hayden did a poem called uh, Heart Shapes in the Dust. I was attracted to him uh, because he's a Baha'i and I'm a Baha'i. You know, we're both members of the Baha'i faith. I love the phrase heart shapes in the dust. When I started doing the faces, I wanted to work with earth and milk. And I really wanted to work with dust. In the Baha'i faith, there's a lot of references to the fragility of, of dust, and that it's everywhere. And it is. Invisible, but it's everywhere. And it eventually accumulates. And so there's this metaphor. So when I started doing the, the faces, I was looking for something that was going to last 500 years. I started doing it because at that time, they were talking about the extinction of the African-American male. They added the African-American male as a species. And I found that particularly offensive because I believe there's one race, that's the human race. And um, it just made me angry that they were talking about us that way. So I was looking for a method that was going to be around for 500 years because since we were not going to be around, we were going to be extinct. I thought people might want to know what we look like 500 years from now. And so I didn't want to use silver because, uh, you know, silver gelatin, which was the one that I had, you know, the process that most photographers were using at that time. I've seen prints that are 75 years old, um, 80 years old, and they're going through a change. You know, they're tarnishing. There's a certain beauty about the tarnishing and everything, but they're, I don't, Unless they're really well archived, I don't think they're going to be around for 500 years. I knew earth could be. Earth pigment, and I knew casein could be. Because casein was used uh, in the cave paintings in, uh, in China. It's probably the strongest foundation outside of egg tempera. And I like the idea of working with milk. You know, casein uh, is a byproduct of milk, it's protein. You add a certain chemical to the casein, it becomes light sensitive. You put pigment in it, 
and it becomes a photographic emulsion. So you come from a photography background? Oh, yes. Um, did you consider yourself an artist when you began photography? Because clearly, when you get to the point where you're working with casein and earth, you're thinking very artistic thoughts, not your usual photography thoughts. I always considered myself an artist. When I was studying uh, photography, and I was basically really self-taught uh, until I went to college at 42 years old, at 42, uh, did you say? Yes. Yeah, that was my first year of college. But, <laughs> but that's another story. Um, I was studying photochemistry, and there's a few books here. And I would study the chemistry of photography because I, I kind of liked it, and I thought somehow the chemistry of photography would be my palette. So before you went to college and started working in casein. You were a photojournalist for 10 years. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that influenced your thinking when you made a break from that into something with casein and earth pigment? And I mean, what were your subjects when you were a photojournalist? What was uh, your beat? Okay, I want to go back just a little bit before I was a photojournalist, but along that route. Sure. I was lucky and uh, I went to Vietnam in 1969. And I met Philip Jones Griffith, who was a magnet photographer at the time. And he told me at that time that I should go to work uh, for a newspaper for, for no more than five years and then continue from there. So that prompted me to get out of the Air Force after uh, 12 years rather than 20. I had planned to actually have to retire from the Air Force. Uh, but I, I left after 12 years started working for the Evening and Sunday Bulletin. And I stayed there for, I think, either nine or 10 years. But the subject matter, you know, while I was at the Bulletin, uh, it was um, what every newspaper photographer does. Um, we do fires and society jobs and uh, a lot of sports. You know, you just do everything. And it was incredible because I learned a tremendous amount. I also learned what newspapers covered and what they didn't. And the reason I left, I felt that the newspapers were not being honest. Can you elaborate on that? What sure. was dishonest? What was dishonest was the people who were uh, covering uh, the, the city, uh, the editors who were covering the city, and they continued working commercially because I think they were afraid at that time that the newspaper was going to die. At that point, at some point, they were on this kind of an evolution into society, you know, of mingling, of dealing with society. And as an African American man, uh, as an African American, period, um, we weren't being covered honestly. We weren't really included in the news. I didn't want to contribute to that. I just felt that. Um, I was supposed to be reflecting society. Instead, I felt that we were reflecting a method of surviving. And so I quit. So you've talked about the medium that you use, but um, is there politics in the scale as well? Oh, yeah. There's not so much politics in the scale, but in the application of the material. This striation. When there's a lack of coverage, there's white showing through, there's white paper showing through. You know, I'm looking at tears. 
I'm, you know, I'm looking at people who have cried in life. And, you know, and as simple as it sounds, it's very difficult to incorporate tears into a two-dimensional image of the face. Maybe we should um, ask you to talk a little bit about the process and how the striations get there, because people won't, all, not all people will know how your process works. So ah. you have said, I scrub the prints until they cry. I forgot I said that. It's a great <laughs> quote. First of all, I mean, as I said, I'm working with casein and earth pigment. And I'm working with a negative, of course, a full-size negative. Um, so it's a contact print. And because there's this variation about the way um, the chemistry is mixed, I never really know how long the exposure is going to be. Sometimes I'll run an exposure in what I think might be long for the material. From there, if, it, if it's correct, if I do it correctly, I have to scrub that in order to get to the image that's underneath. If it's not enough, then sometimes the image will flake or fall off and still exposing that image underneath. But if it's really way too much, then I can't scrub and get to the image underneath. And so then I have to put a layer on top of that other layer and begin to work with that. So, you know, it's not a formula. Each print has, got, has, has its own solution. We're looking at some of your work and some of it is framed behind glass. And there are two very large prints that are hanging and not framed. So. What makes the decision for you on putting it behind glass or not? The gallery likes them framed. <laughs> <laughs> but you're also a person who's concerned with the longevity of the work, and I'm wondering how not framing it feeds into that, because it seems like a contradiction. I know. I know. It's a good question. I love the freeness of the print. They kind of bow and they shrink and they do all sorts of things and, and I work from edge to edge and so even when I'm exhibiting I like to just put little silver nails uh, in each corner so that it feels free. Uh, framing to me just makes it precious uh, and I don't particularly want the pieces to be precious. I want them I would love people to be able to touch them, actually. You had talked about, mentioned earlier that you were a Baha'i. Yes. And I'm wondering, how did, were you born into that? No. I discovered that when I was about uh, 27 or 28. Um, and I, I was born into being a Baptist. My mother was a Baptist. And uh, she was the choir director. She was an, an, incredible singer, and she had offers to sing nationally with nationally known groups, but she had a large family. She died when I was 12, and I think that was a real change uh, for me. And so I went from kind of sitting at her, sitting next to her at church, to being a really dogmatic atheist, and would say things that would people sitting around me would wait for the lightning to come through the roof. And then something happened. I started searching for something that made sense to me. And so around 1967, uh, I was in Columbus, Ohio, 
and someone came in and they talked about um, the unity of religion, um, the unity of the manifestation, what we've referred to as the manifestations of God all having the same message, but being repeated every thousand years or so that, and given new social laws, and those social laws being critical to the evolution and the progress of humanity, which made sense to me. And they talked about um, science and religion being one. And there were other things, you know, and I thought, well, this is, this is what I've been looking for. It demanded also something of me because we don't have a clergy. My soul my, was put into my hands, my responsibility. I didn't like a clergy in between me and God. So have your subjects um, commented to you at all about what they think of their portraits? Most of them don't recognize themselves. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they're very painterly because of the process and because of the way they look. And I wonder if, in a way, they're almost all portraits of you. They are. They're all self-portraits. Every piece is me. That's true. Um, when I started this, one of the, I, I think, let me go back a little bit, and, and, and uh, not photo history, but art history. As a kid, I loved, I fell in love with the abstract expressionist. Uh, what I loved is how they could take um, a line of something, or a simple color, or a splash, or cover an entire piece, and make that a statement. Rothko, I just fell in love with Rothko, still love Rothko. You know, I can go to the museum, take a little chair or something, and just sit there for hours and look at Rothko. I'm not supposed to love Van Gogh, but I love Van Gogh. I love him because he's raw. You have a very spiritual quality in, in your work and in your life. Can you talk a little about that? It's, it's difficult to talk about that in art. When I'm, doing, when I'm doing a piece, I can't do it by myself. I'm depending a lot on what happens. As I said, you know, I, I can calculate certain things, but there reaches a point where I'm in a conversation with an inanimate object, and somehow life is happening in that. If I try to take over too much, the piece just doesn't exist. It doesn't come into existence. I could say it's spiritual. I don't know if it is or not. I'm, you know, I, I think there's a little bit of that agnosticism or that atheism that still rests within me. Uh, but it was also the other reason that I loved being a Baha'i, I love the thing, was that we have a responsibility and an obligation to question. So I do question that spirituality because it's invisible. But it's also what I'm working with when I'm creating my work, that, that kind of invisible essence that I'm talking with, that, uh, that's somewhere on the other side of this uh, inanimate material that I'm working with. Difficult to explain, but then spirituality and faith and all of those things are difficult to explain. Otherwise, they would, they would be fact, not influence or metaphor. Let's talk about writing and reading. 
Do you do any writing? Do you have a writing practice? <clears throat> Poetry or short stories or? Uh, no, I'm a really bad writer. Letters. How about reading? What are you reading these days? Um, you know, I read my magic books because you know they're kind of they talk about performance. Wait, 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 let's back up and talk about magic <laughs> for a minute. <laughs> what magic books and what magic are we talking about? Um, and I, when did you start? I started when I was about eight years old. I the reason I started, I think, was because my father was a magician, and um, he he did something that. Uh, magicians really would not do today, or needle swallowing. And it's something that Houdini did. He would swallow uh, thread and then he, and he would swallow needles and then he'd pull the needles out of his mouth, threaded on his thread. Well, he did that for my eighth birthday party. Magicians wouldn't do it today because they're afraid some kids would try it. Yeah. Well, I'm the only one who ever tried it. So. <laughs> How'd it go? Oh, I finally did it. I learned how to do it, and I did it when I was about 14 years old. Wonderful teacher, by the way, Mr. Campana. Uh, after my mother died, I was uh, probably a pretty troubled kid. And um, had a good voice, so I was always in the choir, also doing magic. And Mr. Campana, who was the choir director, would get jobs for me, pick me up and take me to the jobs and bring me back home. So I would perform for the Lions Club and the Kiwanis and other things that he got for me. And each gig he got me in 1954 was like $15 or $20. That was good money then, especially for a kid performer. And what kind of magic? You weren't pulling the needle and thread out of your mouth. Oh, so no. what were you doing at age 14 or 15? Oh, I, I had a, a bird that I produced, and I, did a, I couldn't afford a lot of stuff. So you know, people would do the floating ball you see on stage. I couldn't afford to get that, so I had a piece of paper that I bowled up and floated. <laughs> Very clever. Kind of gutsy stuff. You know, I didn't, like I said, I didn't have money, so... The, I think the fun thing they, was that I, when I really wanted to prove that I could do something, uh, that in New York there's a theater uh, that does a Monday Night Magic. And so every Monday, for probably 15 years now at least, they have been doing shows in New York. And it's always top quality performance. You really have to be good in order to get there. Well, I wanted to see if I was good enough to get there. And so I performed there for uh, a couple of years, uh, doing um, not the stage performance because I don't like to do the stage, but I do uh, during the intermission. There was a 12-minute segment in which they had three performers working around the theater, and so I would do those. That's great. Are you still doing magic? I mean, yeah. you're you're a professional magician. Well, I don't. I, I'm not going to say professional. I have to make money to be professional. Oh. And they didn't pay us enough to make it. I mean, you know. But you know, most artists, I find that many, many artists, I'm not going to say most, many artists have this kind of second thing they do. And they do it very well, but no one knows what they do. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us. We've been talking with Don Camp at his studio in West Philly. Thank you so much, Don. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for inviting, you know, coming in and sharing your time with me. Art Blog Radio is brought to you by theartblog.org. 
Thanks to our sponsors, including the Knight Foundation. Also, we want to thank Peter Crimmins, who makes us sound good. He's our editor. And thanks to Eric Biondo for his music. You can download these podcasts at theartblog.org slash radio.